Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. My name is Joe List, and I am happy you're here, happy you're listening and or watching. And um, I'm just very grateful for your uh, attendance and support. Today's episode is a special episode. Um, we put together, I'm taking a little bit of uh, a hiatus due to, um, well, a very busy schedule and um, a whole bunch of, a whole host of things. And I appreciate everybody that has reached out to ask where the new episodes are. They are coming. We're working on it right now. We got a whole bunch of exciting new guests, professionals, comedians, musicians, all kinds of good stuff coming your way. In the meantime, uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So we wanted to uh, give you some, some good stuff from the past show, some best of, if you will. And today's episode focuses on sobriety and addiction, which if you're a fan of the show, you know we've talked about a lot. And um, some of the producers here at Laugh Button were kind enough to put together some of the best of, of those conversations on those topics. And uh, it's really uh, a great episode here. It's sort of a, a condensed uh, version of the, the episodes with uh, sobriety and addiction as the main focal point. And some of the guests today include Ian Fidance, a wonderful comedian and friend who I love, Rosebud Baker, and Patrick Holbert, who are all fantastic comedians who came on the show in the past and um, were kind enough and giving enough to talk about their own experience with addiction and recovery and sobriety. And uh, I think there's a lot there, even if you're not in recovery or an addict, there's just a lot of great life lessons in there. And we also have Dr. Judd Brewer, who's one of my favorite guests. And he talks about addiction, um, not from an experiential place, but from a, um, uh, oh boy, I'm not smart enough to say he studies it. He's a doctor from a medical standpoint. That sounds good, right? He talks about it from a medical perspective, uh, which is really fascinating at the end. So you get a lot of um, perspective from people that have been through it and dealt with it. And then you get, um, like I said, a, a medical angle on it, which is just fascinating. And I highly recommend Judd's book called Unwinding Anxiety, which I absolutely love. And it's about addiction, addiction to anxiety specifically. But uh, there's some great stories in here and some really funny stuff. And I think some really poignant stuff and stuff that we can all use that I think um, you'll get a lot out of. And it's um, if you've heard these episodes before, the individual episodes, it'll be a nice refresher. And if you haven't, it'll give you a little taste of um, what you can go check out the full episode because they're all up on the Mindful Metal Jacket feed right now and up on the YouTube so please check them out and check out these comedians, Ian Fidance, Rosebud Baker, Patrick Holbert, all really funny comedians and extremely kind people, as you'll see in here. And check out, check out uh, Dr. Judd Brewer, who's a frequent guest on a lot of podcasts. And he's an absolutely fascinating guy and just pretty brilliant, frankly. So enjoy all of that. And uh, there's more new episodes coming soon. Well, this is a new episode, but there's more brand new episodes coming soon. And uh, as always, I really appreciate your support. And thanks to everyone who's reached out and left nice reviews and subscribed and thumbs up and left comments. Please continue to do that. And um, no need for any concern. I am alive, healthy, and well, and there will be new episodes coming out soon. So please um, enjoy this episode. And you know what? I didn't even prepare a quote, so I'm going to have to just pull one right out of my tits. And by tits, I mean head. That's where it all lives. 
let me think of something good off the fly. What's one I say all the time? Well, the thing I say to myself the most and is a good mantra to live by, and it's connected with sobriety and addiction even. My thoughts are not reality, and fear is just fear. I tell myself that about 50 times a day when I go down my hypochondriac moments, anxiety. It's just fear. Fear is just fear. My thoughts are not reality. And now enjoy this episode of Mindful Metal Jacket. Thank you. I love you. Didn't you have some drinking name that rhymed with your last name? Sober Holbert. Yeah, that's oh, okay. what uh, my friend, my buddies called me that in high school because uh, I didn't drink in high school and I drove them everywhere. So they nicknamed me Sober Holbert, which is ironic because then I became a horrific alcoholic for <laughs> almost 10 years. Yeah, I have the same thing. It's interesting because I never drank in high school either. I didn't, I was like, I, I had my first drink, I think like six months after high school, October of 2000. I graduated in June of 2000. I've heard you mention that and it's eerie because mine was October 99 when I was like three weeks into freshman year at college. So it's like our stories line up at that point just a year earlier. Interesting. So you must have drank a little bit less time than me because you've been sober a little while longer. Yeah, I drank for nine years from 99 till 2008. So it was a pretty compact uh span there interesting because i feel like i drank i drank for like 10 years i guess i drank drank for 10 i'm trying to think i guess i started in october 2000 i stopped drinking in december of 2012 so what's that 12 that's 12 years yeah 12 years but there was periods of like i'm not drinking now (laughs) yeah yeah totally you know three weeks or whatever of like six beers a horrible i remember going on a cruise with the guys that called me sober holbert in high school when we started drinking uh in in our mid-20s we went on this cruise and i was like i'm gonna be sober on this trip meaning i'm only gonna drink beer and water and uh if i just drink beer all day and switch to water when things start getting really messy then that's sober like i'm not i'm not blacking out so that's like sober enough how did, crazy. It, how did it work out? It, it surprisingly worked out really well. I was just pretty much drunk the entire like six days. And uh, I remember getting my bill from the bar because you everything's free except alcohol. And I remember the my uh, booze uh, tab cost more than the trip itself. Um, and then I lost several friends at the end of the trip. That was a trip. I, I don't know if you've heard me mention this. I got on a JetBlue flight in Tampa, Florida on the way home from the cruise and uh i immediately walked into the cockpit to request a selfie and i was wasted i was still drunk i had a hawaiian lay around my neck a stupid fedora on my head i'm like let's let's take a selfie this is way post 9 11 and they let me into the cockpit to take selfies with the pilots uh and then they had a good laugh. And then I walked into the cabin and I picked up the phone and I told everyone on the flight, Hey guys, we're going to do karaoke now. And people looked at me like this guy's hilarious. Let's do like whatever. And I think about that now in the context of what's going on in the world. And I'm like, that's white privilege right there. Like that. I 
waltzed onto a 747 and entered the cockpit within 10 seconds of being on the plane. That's amazing. Well, this was post 9-11? Yeah, this is 2006. It was summer 06. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, if you were a yeah. uh, uh, Muslim, you'd probably be dead yes. right now. But uh, yes. that's wild. Oh, good for and you. And that's what's, I mean, that's what's confusing about drinking is because when you're, when you're this kind of a drunk, which sounds like you, pro- you were probably a fun guy. Like when people think you're a fun guy and you are silly, people assume, well, it can't be that big of a deal, you know? And I also was always doing well at work and it just, it just didn't have like on the surface consequences that everyone could see all the time. So that's what makes it hard is, you know, you have a problem and you know, you keep getting into trouble, uh, but it's just so much fun. So you have to keep doing it. Yeah, that was, I had the exact same uh, experience. I would always do shit like that. And I always felt like I was killing and often I was. And then, um, all my friends also drank and then, um, and family, and it was always fun and silly and you'd be getting laughs. And so nobody, I mean, literally nobody in my life was like, Hey man, you might want to cool it out a little. (laughs) Like, um, yeah. Even when I, uh, I've told the story many times, but even when I blacked out and shit in a girl's shoe and pissed on her rug and fell through her table, I had people just calling me and like, this is hilarious. Like everybody yeah. was calling me to be like, that's like the funniest thing I've ever heard. I had one like, friend. Dude, you got like, a great 15 minutes out of this. Yeah. People were like, this is great. And then my friend was like, I've done that like three times. Seriously. Like my friend took a shit in his in-laws bathtub Ooh. and Ooh. We we laughed and we're just like that's great. So like at no point, maybe at some point I have to think. But like at no point really was anybody ever like, hey, I'm I'm pretty concerned about your drinking. Yeah, and then I did have that uh, within a year of drinking. It was a, a mental health counselor on my college campus who I did work with. Like I was like a double life drinker. I was a student leader on campus and she brought me into her office and she was like, I keep hearing these stories. It sounds like you become a different person when you're drunk. She said all the textbook things. And she asked about family history. I do have family history of alcoholism. And uh, she said this classic thing that we probably say to other people now. It's like, well, I can't say that you're an alcoholic because uh, that's not how it works. But you might be an alcohol abuser is what she said and that made me uh I just decided I'll just avoid her for the rest of college and then I'll just drink however I want and it won't be a problem yeah so that's the thing with alcoholism is sort of self uh diagnosed but I never nobody said hey you're an alcoholic you're crazy but when I was like hey I'm an alcoholic so I quit Nobody was like, what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody was like, no way, man. They're, they're checking off their betting pool and they're like, oh, okay, Joe did it in 12 years. Uh, I win 500 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Everyone was like, no, that makes sense. Sure. And yeah. uh, it, it's hard, especially in, in comedy, because everyone's so fucking wild. And yeah, um, I always talk about, I think I talked about this on this podcast, the idea of... Um, comedy Christmas parties has always been so funny to me. The idea of like, we're going to get together, let our hair down a little, have some fun, (laughs) just get loose. And you're like, Uh, okay, I've been doing that every night, but sure. Yeah. So that's where I'm so grateful that the comedy 
came after sobriety for me because if I were, I mean, I used to work like, I guess, comedy adjacent or entertainment adjacent. I was a TV producer for many years and we had Christmas parties. I worked for MTV. They threw their Christmas party at Hammerstein Ballroom. Like it was an, an insane party. Like people would get taken out in ambulances from drinking too much. And I always, always, always made a total ass of myself. Like I can remember pulling executive producers aside and like yelling in their ear while they're just trying to have a night out and like enjoy the music dance i'm pulling them aside telling them what's wrong with the network and i'm like a production assistant you know uh but when i'm drunk i think i know every well i think i know everything now but when i'm drunk i want everyone to know that that's i mean i did stuff like that i remember in comedy so wait so i want to tell this story but you never drank while doing stand-up comedy is that right I guess I did in the sense that my first open mics were when I was 19. I was in college uh, and I was drinking. Um, and then I, yeah, and then I did open mics again, not for until like eight years ago. So, uh, yeah, and that was after I got sober. Man, it's, I, I was talking to Rosebud uh, Baker a couple of weeks ago, and she's another mm -hmm. person that quit drinking and, um, she said the same thing. I, I didn't realize like she didn't her comedy and drinking didn't overlap, which I'm sort of uh, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that I started comedy when I did. I guess I wish I. Yeah, I, I, I just cannot imagine how many enemies I would have, you know, how many how many clubs I'd be blacklisted from or whatever, you know, like I, I don't know what kind of mess I would have made in that environment. Yeah, I was good at behaving because I knew comedy meant so much to me. So I was pretty good at behaving. And I was really, really extremely skilled at pretending not to be drunk. I, mm. I forget where I was just talking about this. It might have been on um, this podcast or maybe it was just in conversation. I can't remember anymore. I do so much talking now. Yeah. I have no idea. But yeah. I was really good at ordering a drink or having a conversation. If I, if it was someone I didn't want to know I was a drunk, I was so good at just being like, okay, here we go. Mm -hmm. And just being like, hi, may I have a captain and Coke? And I had had 17 drinks. I was in like a brownout, yeah. but I, yeah. which essentially is lying. I was like a good bullshitter, but yeah. I could talk in that way of like, it's like Chappelle talks about how he has black voice and white voice where he's like, I don't like that deal. <laughs> yes. I yeah. could do that drinking of just be like, yeah. I'll have two Budweiser's and I never got kicked out of bars for that. I rarely got kicked out because I was able to do that. It's like the computer program took over in your head to like just pretend to be sober and go on autopilot. Yeah. Uh, that, that reminds me of sort of the opposite thing where I was good at meeting, I was good at meeting women and I loved uh, picking up girls while drinking and stuff. And they would meet this version of me, this like totally keyed up, wild man dance party guy like i loved i love you know when like a, a a dance circle forms at a bar and people are dancing getting crazy i loved being the guy like trying to like outdo everybody and i would meet girls that way and certain girls like were attracted to that or whatever and then i would make a date for later that week or whatever to meet up like I would get numbers. I was rarely like a one night stand guy, but uh, I I remember having this problem of like, well, shit, they met, they met like awesome Pat miscellaneous. Pat miscellaneous was my rap name. Uh, they met nice. Pat miscellaneous. Now I'm just Patrick during after work. Like I got to like 
bring myself back up to that level, which either involved getting drunk before the date or just like having to like pretend or something. So I don't know if it relates exactly to pretending being sober at the bar, but it's like basically playing pretend to like be this like cartoon character that they met on Friday night. Yeah, totally. I mean, I relate to that with drinking and comedy in some ways, but similarly, like I got laid more doing karaoke than comedy. First of all, I was not a good, <laughs> I was not good at getting laid and had no confidence, but like there was a couple of times, two different instances where I just ripped it so hard at karaoke that girls were like, I'm going home with you. I, one girl was like, I'm going home with you and I don't care what you say, which was nice. That's amazing. Actually. Yeah. And, um, another girl that was like way more attractive than I was. And, um, but it was similar because the next morning sober, I'm a shy person and anxious and like, hi, uh, yeah, Yeah. I don't know. And it it, it is hard. It's a completely different animal. Yeah. And that's, what's, that's, what's challenging about booze. It's, it's socially acceptable to drink a lot, especially in New York city. It's uh, a lot of people don't consider it a drug and, um, uh, what's the point I wanted to make about it? Uh, just that, like, it's, uh, it, fuck, I lost the point I wanted to make. Um, it'll come back anyway. Dual, I'm dual. drunk. I'm wasted. <laughs> Did you drink when you were a, this is a side note from a different i'm going i'm switching thoughts midstream here but did you drink while you were doing comedy or did you start after you got sober no i started way after i got sober i started six years after i got sober oh wow yeah i don't know how people get sober like after already drinking while doing comedy that shit blows my mind like that's like a fucking miracle to me because I just, I can't imagine, like, however hard it was to get sober, I, I think has, it's got to be, like, doubled if you're a comedian. Because um, you're just around it all the fucking time, you know? And, like, for me, when I quit, I had to give up a lot of sh- I had to give up my friends. I had to give up my, uh, my whole way of life. So... I, I look at like, like you quit before or after you started comedy, right? You quit yeah, zero, well, you were a couple of years in. I was, a, I was many years in. I was like, God, I didn't want to admit how many years in. I was like 13, almost 13 years in. Yeah. I've been doing yeah, comedy that's for like amazing 48 to years. <laughs> I don't know how people fucking do that. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it was the career. My career is just going so shittily that I was like, all right, I got to stop doing this this is this is not working and um but yeah i mean it definitely it was crazy to be around career stuff i mean that's what i think about is like drinking the way i drank and the way i'm sure you drank we obviously didn't drink together but to be in work environments drinking like that is so insane but comedy was like that i mean i always think the funniest thing to me in the world is the idea, and I've been laughing about this for 20 years now, the idea of like a comedy Christmas party is so funny. The idea of like, guys, it's the holidays. Let's all get together. Just let our hair down a little. Let's just, (laughs) 
cool out and have some fun. <laughs> like, it's so funny. Right. Like the idea of a yeah. Christmas party is like you work in an office. It's very stiff and everyone's very, oh, hello, good meeting. And then you have a Christmas party. You're like, let's have a few drinks and loosen up. And the idea of doing that in comedy is just so funny of like, we're going to have an like open if, bar. If any of you haven't tried crack yet, <laughs> right, we're going right. to get together for Christmas and uh, we're going to smoke some rock. But, um, but that's, I mean, it was like that on the road. Like I would be on the road and just the, the work was in the way of the drinking. I was like, let me see how drunk I can get. I would start now, but I got to do this fucking dumb show first. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I just, I mean, it was just destroying my career and obviously my, I hated myself even more than I do right now, which is tough. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's significant. <laughs> I, I do think that, it's funny, like, did your career get better immediately when you quit? Pretty much immediately. I mean, like, I I went to the cellar like a month later. Like, I went to audition. I had been passed at the cellar and then stopped getting booked. And then when I got sober, I was sober for like a month. And I was like, let me start trying to make things happen. Because if, if I'm just going to get sober and not try to do anything differently professionally, then what's the, even the point? So I went and started right. asking people like, hey, can you put in a word for me at the cellar? And I got past at the cellar like, I think like I was like five weeks sober. Oh, wow. So Holy like, shit. I started getting spots there and this, this clicking and popping is happening still, but only on my speaker, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to mention I'm that again. It. All right, I'm never mentioning it But if we do again. have to re-record, I'm down. I don't care. Um, um, oh God, you hate it. Like, you hate this episode. Th no, this has been great. Uh, I I was talking to Andy, and Andy was like, because uh, he got sober after starting in comedy, and he, <laughs> it's really funny to me because he always talks about like, yeah, I got sober, and everything got worse. <laughs> he was like, he was like, everything just got so much shittier until he moved to New York, and because in New York. I think you can just focus on comedy and I, it's almost like a Ponzi scheme, how quickly you can get ahead in New York just by getting better at standup. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting. Sarah and I always talk about, there's actually not, when you look at comedy, I feel like in general, there's not a ton of comedians who are really successful that are crazy drunks. Like it's hard to, be a drunk and successful at comedy. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, there's some, but like in our, in this city, at least most of the really successful comedians aren't partying that hard. I feel like, but maybe I'm just saying it cause I'm old and I hang out with sober people. No, I think you're right. Cause I, there's a lot of people that are so fucking funny, so funny. And you know, I go, why, what's going on? Like, why aren't they like, why aren't they ahead of where they are? And the longer I, I'm around comedy and the longer, you know, you get to know people, you start to get to know more about them. And you're like, oh, okay. Like you just start to see them around and you go, you start putting pieces together and you go, that person is in their own way. That's right. the only reason why they're not ahead of where they are. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm trying to think of like, I mean, I don't want to out people as like alcoholics or something but i'm just trying to think of like there's not a lot of people in the city that are like really doing well successful and are like drink very heavily i mean like burt yeah. kreischer's not in new york but like he's someone that's like a party guy he drinks a lot and is extremely successful 
Um, yeah. But he's made that his thing. That's part of his thing is like, I go out, I party, I drink, I do shots. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, this yeah, is like, he's, a, I mean, but, he's like, a, it's crazy. When I look at Bird, I'm like, I just look at him in awe, like as, as an alcoholic, I, I look at him and I'm just like, you're a God because it's like, <laughs> I can't, he, I mean, to be able to like drink as much as he does. And then he'll like wake up the next morning and just fucking, I opened for him in Philly. Yeah, it was Philly. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm going out with the fans tonight. And then tomorrow I'm going to bike from Philly to DC tomorrow morning at six in the morning. And I was just like watching his Instagram story, like this guy's hungover and he's biking through several states in one fucking day. I I couldn't imagine. Yeah, it's insane to the point where I've suspected that he was faking how much he was drinking, but all his friends, everyone that really knows him well, and I'm friendly with Bert, they're like, no, no, he's drinking like that. Because I was like, he must be doing like Dean Martin, like drinking apple juice and pretending, or he's throwing beers underneath the thing. It can't be yeah. possible. But um, yeah. I think he is. He's like a superhero. But it's funny as like we're alcoholics, the idea of like, I have the same thought of like, he's amazing. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah. that's so cool. I'm like, yeah. look at him. But yeah, I feel like I'm meeting like a DC comic hero. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, hi, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't mean, know. I'm, he's really uh, like, he defies the laws of nature. <laughs> Yeah, it's impressive because for me, I don't know. How, you must have been pretty young when you quit drinking, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was like uh, 22. Yeah, because I was, I was 30, about to be 31. And uh, that's what part of the reason. When I hit 30, hangovers became a different situation for me. Like when I was yeah. 23, I would, same thing, I would drink like blackout drunk and then play basketball the next day. And then when I would yeah. hit 30, I, a hangover would, I'd lose a day of my life. Yeah, man. I, I never, I mean, the hangovers, like I could just keep going. Um, when I quit drinking, like it was so weird that I even quit that young. Like there's so many times when I've just been like, why the fuck didn't you just like stick it out? You know? But, uh, when I look back at it, I'm like, there's no way that I could have because I kept waking up the next day and people would be like, you tried to kill yourself last night. And I'd be like, well, I was drunk. And they'd be like, well, I'm fucking traumatized. Um, <laughs> so like, I couldn't keep it going because it was just too, you know, people would, uh, they'd be like, you're hurting us. <laughs> yeah, I remember one time uh, I was in the North End of Boston, which is like Little Italy, and I fell asleep on the side of on a building like on the ledge of a building it was like a six story and it was like um you know it's like the thick little mini wall around the building and i was on top of the thing so it was like this wide it was like whatever the, as wide as my ass and i was just laying on it and i like completely fell asleep and my friend ryan like woke me up with like his left hand covering my hip so i would not fall and like pulled me off the roof and he's like yeah. dude you were just asleep there and I was yeah. like, what? I'm like, and I was mad. I was like, what are you doing? I'm asleep. Let me fucking sleep, you fucking douche. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, look where you are. And I looked down. It was like a six story. Like I would, if I had rolled off, I would have just landed whatever the fuck, face first. Yeah. And I remember like a girl being like, that was crazy. It's <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. Yeah.
One thing I, I love about, I don't know if we can mention it, but you know, programs of recovery is the idea that like your God or your spiritual connection does not have to be what you once thought it was. So I always thought like prayer had to be on your knees in the prayer position. Dear, dear heavenly father, I pray to you today. You know what I mean? And so when I would talk to God or whatever, is this okay? Am I clocking in with you properly? You know, and um, I've really gotten away from my contact with God, but the desperation and places I've been in the past couple months have really kind of kicked my ass into making me have no choice but to talk to whatever is out there. So in a way, I'm grateful for kind of the the shit that I've been through in the past couple months. But I think um, that whole thing of am I doing this right? Am I praying? Okay? Am I talking to a, a being outside of myself in the proper way? And it's like, well, it's up to you. Right, sure. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I feel that 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 gratitude feeling of like, of going through shit. Like, and I think about that all the time with, with drinking. I'm like, it was so miserable to be such a fucking drunk maniac and blacking out right. and, and, and fucking up relationships and career and all that stuff and just feeling like shit. But it makes me so grateful that I went through it now because I'm like, oh, right. I have like this, I have this thing to compare my life to of like, mm-hmm. this is what it would be like. And I talk about that all the time and think about it all the time where I'm like, I'll go through a weekend on the road or, or a quarantine or I'm sick or have anxiety. And I'm like, imagine how much worse it would be if I was drinking. If like, you know what I mean? Well, that, that's the crazy thing is when I was drinking, I was like, God damn it. If I could just shut out the world and have nothing to do and just fucking bottle of vodka on my knee, rocking chair, all the free time in the world, I would finally be happy. (laughs) And then now that that's an option, I was like, I would be in hell. <laughs> right, know? right. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I was saying right off the bat when this started happening, the pandemic, whatever, lockdown, whatever we call it. I was like, I said it to Sarah, who's sober as well, obviously. Maybe it's not obvious, but she is. And I'm saying obviously because you know that. But <laughs> right away, I was like, this is like all of our fucking prayers being answered when we were yes. drinking. Yes. That's like the idea. Like that's when I was, the only time I was happy when I was drinking was like, I would go on vacation with my family up in Maine. And I was like, all right, I'm away from comedy. I'm away from show business. No one in my business is up here. And my family, they're stuck with me. So even if I blackout and break everything in the house, which I did. I was like, they're going to have to still love me. Mm-hmm. So I felt protected. And that's what this kind of feels like. We are like, all right, we can't leave. We can't work. We have all day. And I, I would a hundred percent be drinking at fucking nine 30 in the morning until 10 at night or whenever I passed out. Sure. Um, but there, there, and there is even part of me like that alcoholic thinking of like, fuck, why couldn't have this happened nine years ago? Yeah. I would have ripped it up. Yeah. I know. I know. I was like, man, I kind of made my own little quarantines every time I got fired from a job, you know, before it got so bad, I had to like go away, you know? So it was like, I, I had, I had bits and pieces of my own homegrown quarantine, you know, but it, it, it was never, and it always ended in desperation and, and, uh, uh, you know, crawling on my knees to take that, substance away from me you know and and i really you know because I, I hadn't gone to are you allowed to mention i don't care <laughs> i i had i had gotten away from uh 
Alcoholics Anonymous and and it really saved my life. I mean, I I've lived in halfway houses. I've worked in halfway houses. You know, I um, was have been in detoxes and hospital all as a result of my drinking. And I've been so far removed from drink that I've convinced myself that I don't need to go to those things anymore. And and it's very not true. Um, but I really admire the people that are like, you know, Hey, I'm so-and-so I'm an alcoholic. And I, I just have to be grateful. I didn't put a drug or drink in my body. I'm 35 years sober and every day is a gift. And my sobriety, I'm just so grateful. I'm like, what the, but yeah, it's 35 years. Of course you didn't put a drug or drink in your body in the morning, Kevin, you know? Right. And, and I feel like I've been so far removed finding that gratitude for being sober. It's there, but being on fire with it is not. And I'd love to get back to that, but I've also joined another program recovery of SLAA of sex and love addicts anonymous. And I feel much closer to that and have found an identification with the fellows in that that's hit me so much harder than AA has recently that that's the place I go where I'm like, it's been such and such days sober of not uh, being in contact with my qualifier that I am just so grateful and you know, and like, that's like the sting that I'm dealing with is the thing that burnt my ass and put me back into the rooms. But I really admire just hearing that gratitude and that, you know, being completely on fire with, with the program of recovery. I, I just admire it so much. Yeah. Well, it is important. I was just talking about this with Sarah too. Like it is important to remember that we are those things still. So like we went up to hang out with my family for the weekend and we worked and, and we just went haywire. We ate, you know, McDonald's and we ate all kinds of fucking candy and I was smoking cigars and we were kind of just like, Oh, I feel like shit. And what what are we doing? And it is like, I had to remind myself and her that like, well, we are fucking alcoholics that we just haven't drank in years, but like uh, my instinct is to. And that behavior is still there. Yeah. My, my instinct, my natural instinct, my first thought when hanging out with family or stress is like, let's drink 40 captain and Cokes and just be fucking, well, fuck all you, you motherfuckers. And so I'm like, (laughs) if I got to eat McDonald's a couple of times, you know, every, every few weeks to not get drunk and try to fuck my aunt or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, you know, just yeah, get, get through it. And it's fine. Um, because you do have to stay in contact with the fact that we're fucking lunatics. We're completely out of our minds. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, and it's such a fun phrase of like, I came from a drinking stayed from a thinking. (laughs) So true, you know, and, and, you know, I, I think that's why I, I would relapse all the time because it's almost like a get out of jail free card of like, you know, Oh, you haven't, you're not drinking. Oh my God. You're so great for you. You're such a good person, you know, and it would be like that little pat on the back of like feeling good. And, you know, you start to get little things back that makes your life so much better because you thought you'd never get them. So I would relapse to almost not, I wouldn't relapse to feel better, but coming back into the rooms off a relapse would make me feel better immediately. Cause it was like, oh, I put down booze. Everything's better now. Oh, I put down the drink. Things are better now. I'm not drinking. Things are amazing. And it's like that would then die off to the point where I would have to relapse again because things got so bad because I wasn't drinking. 
Right. I didn't have that thing that masked everything. And then once that flush out of my body, I was left with myself and I was like, oh, fuck. Right. Ducks. The man in the mirror is a problem. Putting in your body. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, we're 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 the problem. So we're we're coming to the end here, but ducks. We're 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 coming towards the end here, but I do want to hear about when did you first I feel like you're you seem like a guy that started probably drinking or drugging young. Is that yeah correct? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it wasn't consistent, but I had my first drink in, uh, I think like six or six, actually no, like fifth grade. My, my grandparents had beer in the garage and they were having beer. I was like, can I have one? And they're like, sure. And, uh, I just had like a honey brown lager with some, uh, wow. pretzel sticks and, uh, I would like drink the, but I never, I didn't like the taste. So I like, didn't even drink all of it. And, and I, I don't even remember getting a feeling, but in seventh grade, I remember getting like drunk and I was like, I want to feel this way forever. And then in eighth grade, I got drunk at, on my birthday and I went home and tried to fight my stepdad. And oh, yeah. uh, I was like, this is not good. And like freshman year of high school, I got so drunk at a party. I faked being sick for the week. Cause I was like, so embarrassed to see everyone at school, you know, like uh-huh. it was just like immediately just like bad and, but addicted to everything like smoking. I started smoking like sixth grade and then stopped and then eighth grade stopped freshman year stopped. And I didn't smoke again. until I was like 21. And then now it's like nonstop. But I uh, even like, masturbation i was addicted to when i was younger because that that was the thing that took me out of myself that was the thing that i got like a relief and in a way i'm like grateful that i just did that instead of finding that relief in alcohol until later because i feel like that would have opened the door to me doing other things and i would have been way more susceptible to being like yeah i'll try heroin why not you know right so like masturbation was like the first thing i really got addicted to where when something was going wrong i didn't feel okay it was like well here's a thing that can make me feel all right you know and that's something that i i don't really talk a lot about because i think that's like jarring to hear but I think a lot of people can relate to just wanting to get outside yourself. And it's like a homegrown high, you know, but also we were like choking ourselves in like sixth grade to try to get high too. (laughs) It's like, did you ever do that? The fucking choke thing where you like lose your air. People did. I never did it. I was a big pussy. I think Sarah did. She, t- I'm looking over here like she's there. She's not. Um, but <laughs> I think Sarah did that. She talked about they all did that, would knock yeah. each other out and stuff. And yeah. she also roofied herself. So she's a, just a big fucking <laughs> lunatic. Um, That's great. It's always fun when you start dating someone. She's like, yeah, I used to take roof and all or whatever. And you're like, what's that? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come That's again? Like, <laughs> great. That's great. That's really neat. Um, but no, so I never did that but i was afraid i mean that's why i started drinking late because i was afraid of all this shit i was a big pussy i was like mm-hmm. drinking what are you insane that's crazy and and choking yourselves and all that stuff but masturbation i definitely relate to and i still feel that way now when i get like really angry or something happens or i see somebody did something i still my first thought is to be like let me go jerk off yeah and i don't always follow up on it but like that was always how i felt was like totally i gotta go and like when i went through like breakups i jerk off like seven times a day just because i'm like 
I would be so angry that I'm like, let me just put myself in this other alternative. It's, it's just, I mean, masturbation basically is just an alternative world essentially totally. for that, whatever few minutes. Totally. Yeah. And, and what fucked me up too is, you know, I talked about being Catholic. I had so much guilt that for the first like couple years I was masturbating, I was praying for forgiveness while I was doing it because I was told that when someone dies, they're with you all the time. So I thought my relatives, I thought my father was like watching and I had to be like, I'm sorry, dad, you know, <laughs> and that just totally fucked me up. Like with what I was thinking about or looking at, you know, but at the same time, I was willing to go through that pain of that because the relief was worth it to get outside myself. You know, right. so I think that set the stage for me being like, Oh, I'll black out. And I'll wake up on the street in a pile of trash. My shit's gone. I'm bleeding, but it was worth it because I got outside myself. You know, right, right. It was worth it because I didn't have to feel. You know. Yeah, that was an amazing thing with with drinking for me is like, and some people will talk about it. Like that first drink, you're like, oh, I got it. I see. This makes sense. This like it was like flushes fucking- over your body. Yeah, exactly. Like clouds part and I'm like, this is it. And then I had that thing immediately where I identify with like, like I was a Tom Waits song or something. I was like, I'm the fucking, I'll be the drunk guy. I'm at the bar. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. You don't know me, man. I'm fucking, yeah. I'm deep. And then oh, you identify dude, with that. I, I thought, I mean, I thought I was Russ Cole from True Detective. Right. That's who I thought I was. I thought I was Russ Cole and, um, you know, like, a uh, three dog night song come together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just thought that I was like um, a Marshall Tucker band song come to life. That's who I thought I was. And I was yeah. not, I was yeah. a mess that, and that wanted to be around. You, you look back and you're like, Oh, you can romanticize all those ideas of, of drinking and being this thing, but you're like, it's miserable. I was miserable. Yeah. They're miserable. You know, you feel fucking totally. fat. You don't actually sleep well. Your relationships yeah. and, are shit. And also sober, I can romanticize pain and I can romanticize being the struggle guy or the guy that just can't get love right. You know, the guy that always has it and fucks it up. Like I can romanticize anything that's negative and I really have to work my fucking dick off to romanticize getting to the other side of it, you know, like I, I'm incredibly positive and I really try to be, you know, upbeat and everything, but behind, once I shut my front door, it's like, I, I hang all that stuff up and I'm like, okay, now I can really just fucking be the, the downer. I was always meant to be, you know? Yeah, no, I had that. And that was a big moment in my life that came with early sobriety was in, in our business and comedy. I was so, um, connected and identified with like this loser, this lovable loser. I got edited off of last comic standing. I never got new faces at just for laughs. And yeah. And then eventually I did way later, but then I bombed and it was, a, I couldn't get a manager and I couldn't get a late night. And that was like my thing. I was, I've just been featuring for too long and I'm down. Don't even tell me your problems because I have it the worst. And then I got sober and I was like, Hey, a lot of these things I want, I never even tried for. Why don't I just try to do that? And then I was like, that classic, like alcoholic thing. I was like, I can't even get a late night set. And then I literally got sober and was like, I have actually made 
literally zero effort to be on mm-hmm. any TV. I've never made a, t- I've never submitted a tape. Like, it's not like they were like, yeah. no, fuck you. I never even, I wanted them to come to my house and be like, Hey, yeah. hi, I'm Dave yeah. Letterman. And I'd like you to come do my show. Yeah. And if you never try, you're not a failure. You right. Know? I th- and that's part of why I, totally. I identify with that. So it, it had to be this, come this new thing of like, a new identification i still struggle not to do it again now to fall back into that of like no i can succeed i'm 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 good I'm, i'm funny i work hard so going back to um uh, the book is so you sort of recognize your thought and um, or whatever it is you're I, I'm, I'm stressed. And so I think I forget the three things. So I'm going to eat. And then the reaction is uh, the result is I'm not as stressed because I'm eating this food. Is that basically yeah. right? Or smoking a cigarette, whatever it is. Yeah. The trigger behavior and a result. Uh, and in fact, if anybody wants to do this themselves, instead of having to go to a psychiatrist and have them write out trigger behavior result on a piece of paper, I just put a, created a website, mapmyhabit.com that anybody can just go to and they can download a free PDF of this and start mapping out any of their habits, whether it's stress, anxiety, worry, procrastination, or, or, you know, anything. And so how does, how do we go then from there? So we start mapping mm-hmm. and then where do we go from there that it starts to, how does it work? Are we kind of reshaping our brain? Cause I keep hearing in all these meditation things that the brain is plastic and we can kind of change these habits. And, and I've managed to do it. I used to drink every day alcohol and I don't, and I, I stopped drinking Coca-Cola a couple of years ago. And some of them, I get nervous to try to even re-explore sometimes even the book is like triggering because I'm like reading about anxiety and panic. And I'm like, no, no, I've been doing so well. I don't want to go back into there. Yeah. Um, so how does it sort of, how do we unwind anxiety as it were? Yeah. So the first step is just understanding how the minds work and mapping them out. And so it, it, the book talks about some of these basic mechanisms, like these survival mechanisms and how they were set up, which can help both reassure us that, oh, this is a normal process, but also help us see how we might be taking this process in a way and trying to force it to change behaviors in a way that's not helpful. So, you know, I, I have a chapter on, you know, anti-anxiety uh, strategies that don't work because, you know, I don't know if you ever saw that, I'm sure you are familiar with Bob Newhart, the comedian, right? Certainly, yeah. So he had this great skit from the 70s uh, called Just Stop It. Did you ever see this one? If I did, I don't remember. I don't know it well. So a woman walks into the therapist's office, Bob Newhart as the therapist, and she says, you know, basically, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. And they, you know, they go back and forth. And basically, everything she brings at him, he just leans over his desk and says, just stop it. <laughs> just stop it. Just stop it. And I won't give the end of the skit away, but it's, it's worth the five minutes of, of watching because it, it's pretty funny. But he's highlighting something that we've been carrying forward since antiquity where this idea that reason cannot compete the passions, including anxiety being one of those passions, you know, the emotions. And, you know, we, we have failed miserably as a species doing that, you know, look at the diet industry. I wish I could just, you know, my patient could walk in and say, doc, you know, I overeat. And I could just say, just stop it. <laughs> you know, okay. You don't have to see me again. Well, I'm smoking. Just stop it. Um, 
done. You know, uh, I worry a lot, just stop it, right? So we take these willpower-based approaches, yet if you look at how the brain works, our brains, <laughs> the willpower, the part associated with willpower is the weakest part of the brain. And ironically, it goes offline when we get stressed or anxious. So it's, it's not reliable <laughs> if it's even, you know, if it even has any strength at all. So here, it's important to just kind of understand that we can't just think our way out of anxiety. We can't think our way out of worrying. And often when we try to think our way out of things, it actually creates more worry because it's not working. So here, understanding this process, that's that first step, mapping these pieces out. But that understanding also extends to understanding how our brains actually change behavior. And our brains change behavior based on one thing, which is how rewarding a behavior is. Okay, That's the second step is it really checking to see how rewarding is this. I'll give a concrete example. Uh, my patients will come in and try to quit smoking. I don't tell them to just stop it. I actually do the opposite. I say, just smoke it. Just go for it. Smoke, but pay attention as you do. Okay. And what they realize is that cigarettes taste like shit, right? They don't taste very good. And in one study, we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment with, you know, with helping people pay attention as they smoke. In a study we just finished that my lab just finished, we found that both with smoking and overeating, if we have people pay attention as they're doing the behavior, that reward value changes, basically it changes in their brain. We can watch that reward value shift from rewarding to not rewarding to the point where they'll actually shift to behavior. So they'll stop overeating, they'll stop smoking. So here's a, and it doesn't take a lot. You're talking about neuroplasticity, this buzzword that everybody loves to write about in popular press. Well, my lab can actually study this, you know, as a neuroscientist, this is something I can actually look at. So we can study this. It takes 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they're overeating, as they're smoking to significantly change that reward value to the point where behavior shifts. Okay. So that's that next step is basically helping our brain see very clearly that this old behavior, it's not doing it for me, you know? So overeating, I just feel blah, you know? Or for example, with my patient who was stress eating, he realized, oh, stress eating doesn't fix my anxiety and it makes me feel more guilty. This guy went on to lose over a hundred pounds. Interesting. Well, so, so again, uh, several things come up and it does feel like a lot of kind of what you're saying is acceptance in some way. I mean, so much of what we do, uh, stress and anxiety and suffering comes from trying to change something. And in reality, it feels like kind of accepting the thing is the most helpful, which is what was so helpful with me with, with panic attacks was I would start to have a panic and I would feel it coming and be like, oh my God, I have to stop this. How is this? This is gonna, I'm not gonna be able to do this or I'm not gonna be able to perform if I have a panic attack before going on TV or on stage or, or I won't be able to leave the house, which eventually kind of like we were talking about with Dave, with driving, it can lead to agoraphobia and people don't wanna leave their house because of fear of a panic attack. But what helped me the most, and I think this is similar to what you're saying is, accepting it, which sounds so counterintuitive of just kind of going, okay, feel this. All right. My, I'm, I can't, I'm, my heart's racing. I'm having tingling. I've, I'm shaking. I'm starting to sweat. Um, and then kind of going, all right, that's, that's what's happening now. That's all this is. It's not, it, I, I'm going to survive it, which feels similar to quitting drinking or eating. I, I need to eat this thing. I want to eat this thing. And then you feel like I'm a piece of shit for eating this thing or for smoking. 
Yeah. Instead of just going, yeah, I, I smoke and then kind of allowing yourself to feel like I, I don't like the way it makes me feel. And I had that with, with drinking. And that's, I mean, people talk about that with alcoholism or drug addiction is sort of hitting bottom is that feeling of, I need to change this because I feel like shit. It's sort of for the first time really being fully mindful of what it's doing to you. And I remember talking to my therapist about anxiety and panic and being like, I'm suffering and him saying, well, not enough to change anything. You're not suffering enough, evidently, which, you know, again, I don't want to recommend people go and do drugs until they've suffered too much or whatever it is. But I don't know if any of that made sense. I'm kind of volleying a big mess back to you. But did that sort of make any sense? It makes complete sense. And your therapist, in very concrete terms, is talking about reward value, where he was saying, if I'm understanding what you're saying, he was saying, hey, look, if if it's still rewarding for you, you're going to keep doing it. Right. right. It, if you look, you can even look back at the ancient Buddhist psychology. There's this, there's this phrase that's basically where the Buddha is talking about, you know, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. So he's talking about getting enlightened, which seems like a good thing. And he was talking about how he couldn't get enlightened until he had basically hit rock bottom with all the things that he was doing. You know, so there's the story that Arthur is around you know, he's got all the worldly pleasures and that's not good enough. And then he becomes this aesthetic and, you know, he starves himself and that doesn't get him enlightened. And he realized it wasn't either of these extremes. It was really about seeing how his mind was working. So that's the piece. It sounds like your therapist was, was talking about this saying, Hey, if you're, if your brain is still enchanted with something, good luck changing it. You know, whether it's the just stop it willpower approach or anything else, it's really about zooming in and asking you know, and I, I like this simple question, what am I getting from this, right? Really feeling into this, what am I getting from this? And we, like you're saying, you don't have to hit rock bottom. It can be any moment that we're, we find ourselves scrolling on social media again, you know, where we can ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? Is this actually improving my quality of life? Or am I just mindlessly scrolling, like pressing a lever like a rat looking for food, you know, which is basically surprise or soothing or whatever, you know, there are a bunch of different rewards that our brains get with social media because it's designed that way to keep us scrolling. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List, produced by Joe List, edited by Matt Kleinschmidt, executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.